When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. All right, everybody, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Uh, it's your host, Adam, and of course, Serfiel is here. He's over the internet tonight. He's not right next to me, but he is here. You're all here on the spiritual telegraph. And we're going to talk about on a very fortuitous date as we're recording this. Now, when the time it comes out, obviously, it's not going to be that date. But uh, it is March 15th, which, as I understand it, is the Ides of March. And so it kind of worked out this way, synchronistically, I guess. But uh, we're going to talk about Shakespeare who made the Ides of, well, I guess the Romans did it first, but Shakespeare made the Ides of March famous. And so we have Catherine Children with us. Catherine, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Glad to be here. Thank you for taking me on. Yeah, uh, this is an interesting subject that we're going to get into tonight. Um, this is something that I was telling you as we were chatting um, in the pre-show banter that I've been interested in for a while. And I mean, I think a lot of people, when they think of Shakespeare, they think that the authorship of Shakespeare, that there was a guy named William Shakespeare, he wrote a bunch of plays and sonnets, and he died in around like the 1600s or something. They had that Shakespeare in love kind of idea of what of who Shakespeare was. But a lot of people don't realize that there are challenges to, I guess, the orthodox Shakespeare idea. And you are one of those challengers. Yes, I am. In fact, um, when I meet people and um, bring it up for the first time, I, I ask them, what, what, tell me what you know about William Shakespeare. And most of them will kind of have a little puzzled look on in their face and say, oh, um, Romeo and Juliet <laughs> or <laughs> Hamlet, they, you know, they might think of a play, but um, or they might say, oh, he was an actor. And that's probably the extent that most people, just the average person is going to know. But, you know, the funny thing is, is that after 400 years, that's probably about all we do know. There's, uh, you know, there's been uh, centuries of scholars trying to find more about him and his life and it's just full of zeros and that is why there is an authorship controversy now um the the story goes is that the great author um was from stratford-on-avon which is a small town uh north in the north um, part of england like north of oxford and about a three-day a horse ride to London, 
and uh, that he had a grammar school education and that around age 13 or so, he started working for his father and his father was um, a glover, they say, or a, a wool merchant, something along those lines. So um, that, that's about all we know about his life. And there, mm-hmm. there's a big blank up until 1593, pretty much, um, when this book came out in print called Venus and Adonis. And it was a poem about these ancient lovers of, of you know, classical antiquity, the, the goddess Venus and the young, handsome boy Adonis. So on the dedication page, there is a signature at the bottom of the letter, signed William Shakespeare. And that's the very first time we see his name in print. Nothing was known about him before that time. Nothing was written about him. We don't have any evidence that he went to school or university. We don't have any payments to him as a writer or an actor. We don't have any uh, letters written in his handwriting. Um, No one claimed to have known him while he was alive. So everywhere you would expect to find him, we're we're not finding him. (laughs) And that's the problem. Right. And we're going to get into a little more detail on that. And I'm curious, though, just with you and like your personal journey with this, how did you become interested in this subject? Like what sparked the interest for you? Yeah, what sparked it was, well, I was a history major at UCLA, so I was already interested in things historical. But um, shortly after I graduated, um, I saw a debate on television on William F. Buckley's firing line. And it was um, a man named Charlton Ogburn who wrote this wonderful book called The Mysterious William Shakespeare. And he was debating a traditional Shakespeare scholar, um, I believe from Yale, an English professor, um, or Princeton, one of those places, a very high up university. And all I noticed, and I knew nothing about this, all I noticed was that Charlton Ogburn kept making very interesting, relevant points, proving the case that the Earl of Oxford was really the true author and that he was using a pen name, William Shakespeare, it being uh, his pen name. And in response of this English professor, he, he really had nothing to support his argument that the man born in Stratford-on-Avon was the great author. And basically, all he could do was, in the end, just cast aspersions on Charlton Ogburn saying, oh, you know, that's just a theory. Oh, it's, you know, like a mystery novel. Oh, you know, he just got, was, you know, subtly putting it down. And um, I just saw it plain as day. And I, of course, read Charlton Ogburn's book, and I've been wanting to tell everybody ever since. And this was uh, over 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And, and yeah. you've, you've written papers about this, and you've given a lot of presentations about this. You've been on tons and tons of radio shows, I see, just like ours. And Yes. Um, yes. So you've definitely, I guess, one of the people that's taken up the torch. And uh, this idea 
um, is not new. Um, I believe that it originates in the 19th century. It's not something that is, uh, that just came out of nowhere. Like in Charles Ogburn was, I guess he was in a long line of scholars that believed that De Vere, the Earl of Oxford was Shakespeare. Yes. Um, it really um, came to a head in the 1850s when um, books started to be written that it could not be the man born in Stratford-on-Avon for various mm-hmm. reasons. And uh, the first choice of the people in the 19th century was uh, Sir Francis Bacon. Mm-hmm. And they did, Baconians, they did great work dispelling the case for the Stratford man. They didn't quite prove their case for Bacon, in, in my opinion, um, but they did a lot of the main, you know, grudge work against the Stratford man. Um, they didn't know in the 1800s about the Earl of Oxford. That came out in 1920 um, with the founder of our theory. His name is uh, John Thomas Looney, and he wrote this book called Shakespeare Identified. And in it, he took a very methodical approach to trying to figure out who was the great author. He was a schoolmaster in England. So he taught Shakespeare plays over and over and over. And he just couldn't square this voice of Shakespeare and this incredibly learned man, um, so talented, so educated, He couldn't uh, marry that with the known life of the Stratford man. And as I mentioned earlier, we don't know anything about his life. (laughs) We we have, we know a few points that he was involved with the theater, but we don't have anything related to writing. (laughs) Nothing exists in the Stratford man's handwriting. So it calls it into question. And there's no, uh, no sign of his having a higher education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to keep in mind that the great author knew Latin, French, ancient Greek. He knew the law. You know, you had to go to special school to learn the law. And we have those enrollment records to this day in, in the, for the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, he knew about rhetoric, which is only taught at the university level. Um, he knew the Bible. He, he knew, you just make a grand list of everything he knew. Um, this person certainly went to university. This person certainly knew the intelligentsia. Um, and, he, and he certainly knew the aristocracy, mm-hmm. his, their, their sports and their customs. So where is the record of this man? It's nowhere to be found. Do you think part of the attachment to the Stratford man is, is because it's kind of nature over nurture and, and people seem, you know, they might be attached to the idea that there's this natural genius of this person from these humble origins. Yes, that's, that's a big part of it. I think that is a, an obstacle for, for people who want to, you know, who, who talk to people like me. Uh, they, they say, well, you know, uh, he could have picked it up here. He could have picked it up there. <laughs> um, you know, I, I talked to my former history professor about it. 
And I said, how did he how did he learn French? You know, you can't you can't get that at the grammar school. And he goes, oh, well, you know, those uh, taverns, they would in London, they would have people from all over the world go there. And I'm sure he heard people speak French or Italian or something like that. It just it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's it, you know, they they want to believe this. Um with no, with absolutely no evidence. And as I mentioned before, there is no lifetime evidence that the great author was this man born in Stratford-on-Avon. And that's the point that I have to keep driving home. One thing about the aristocratic um, lineage and the upbringing, uh, keeping some of those things in mind, when you read Shakespeare, you see Shakespeare performed. Uh, One of the things that struck me was you know a few years ago they BBC and it was shown here on PBS they came out with these series of films that were based on the Henriad. So mm-hmm. it was Richard the Second, Henry the Fourth, both both parts of Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, and then they did another one with Henry the Sixth plays and, and Richard the Third. But um, as I was watching Henry the Fourth Part One, you know, there's the the scene in there that, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown and just that soliloquy that Jeremy Irons was playing the part, which as I understand it is also a doubter of the Stratford man. Yes, he is. Um, he was playing Henry the fourth and to hear what he says in that soliloquy, I just, to myself, I thought there's no way that just some ordinary guy could have written this. This was someone that, was written this was something that was written by someone that was close to the halls of power yes yes and that was that 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 knew and understood politics right and there is no william shakespeare uh known to be a servant for working for any of the people in the halls of power like you said um there's a wonderful example in hamlet um the counselor, his name is Polonius, and for a very, for at least a hundred years, historians say that Polonius was was based on a real person, Lord Burley, uh, William Cecil, his title, Lord Burley, and um, it was not a flattering port- port- portrayal. It was actually a lampooning of this man, a lampooning of the most powerful man in England, the most powerful woman was Queen Elizabeth I, but he, he, her, her main agent was Lord Burley. So how would someone with humble origins and no contacts, number one, know this man in person enough to lampoon him, but number two, survive it. I mean, this was not an open society where you can make fun of anybody on stage. Uh, Many, many uh, authors of the period, dramatists, were put in jail, several of them. And so you had to be careful back then. Who could do it but somebody who was, like you're saying, in the halls of power, someone who knew the queen, knew Lord Burley. And, well, all you have to do is look at the Earl of Oxford. Lord Burley was his guardian when he was a teenager. And then thereafter, he married, the Earl of Oxford married Lord Burley's daughter. 
who, who actually died young. Uh, she was sort of an Ophelia, just like Hamlet. The, the life of Hamlet very much is like the Earl of Oxford. So, I mean, that's just one example. But yes, uh, this was somebody who definitely knew the aristocracy and knew how power works. And you're talking about the Henriad. That was all about the succession. Um, how do you have this commoner talking about, you know, who's going to be the next person in power constantly in so many plays, all of the history plays? So um, how would he be allowed to do this unless it was in collaboration with the government? The government would have to have had allowed it. And yet we don't have any William Shakespeare um, in the roles of the, the government. Uh, receiving money or anything like that. So this is this is the the problem. I, I want to start with talking about a little bit about the history of the publications of the folios, and this is important with establishing the Stratford man um, as the author of the of the plays. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? How the the first folio is produced and how that is we get these kind of first pictures of, of Shakespeare and, and the beginning of this modern myth, I guess, becomes, starts to happen. Yes, exactly. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there is no lifetime evidence that the man born in Stratford was the great author. There is only posthumous evidence after he died. And that the main piece of posthumous evidence is what you just mentioned, the first folio. That was in 1623. The Stratford man had been dead for seven years at this point. And what the first folio is, it's a large book, folio-sized pages, over 900 pages, and they are filled with 36 Shakespeare plays. It was... Some say it was the greatest event in literature when that book came out because 20, 20 of those plays had never been in print up until that time. So if we didn't have the folio, we wouldn't have had plays like Anthony and Cleopatra and As You Like It and many others, Macbeth. So we, we have to be very grateful to this book. But, but... It was also the source of the hoax of wanting us, the public, to believe that the great author came from Stratford-on-Avon. So, um, the first 16 pages have tributes to Shakespeare by various poets. And um, one, on one page, someone mentions to, in a poem to Shakespeare, Sweet Swan of Avon. You may have heard that phrase, Sweet Swan. Back then, a swan in, that, in the 16th, 17th century was associated with poets. So, poet of the Avon is basically what he was saying. So, okay, that's a place name. Then you turn a couple pages further in, and another poem by another poet makes a mention to Shakespeare's Stratford Monument. So you put together Stratford and Avon and, you know, voila, you're going to think that the great author came from Stratford on Avon. 
even though there were many Stratfords, and there still are many towns with the word Stratford on out in it, and many towns with the word Avon in it. Um, but Stratford on Avon took hold, especially because in Stratford on Avon, there was a monument in the church to a Shakespeare, just Shakespeare, the word Shakespeare only. And because of that, they support each other, and posterity has not looked back. So that is the main source. Um, if you look at the Stratford man's life, he was involved with the theater. And if you open in the opening pages, um, there are these this letter, a dedication letter to the Earls of Pembroke and Montgomery. And the letters are signed Hemmings and Condell. Those were two well-known actors, John Hemmings and Henry Condell. And the Stratford man, in his will, we see a small bequest to Hemmings and Condell. So that's kind of another connection. But the, there is no evidence that the Stratford man was an, an author, a writer. You look at the will, there's no mention of manuscripts. There's no mention of books. Nothing, nothing that would make you think that this person was involved in the theater or poetry or writing. Um, but Hemmings and Condell were real people, and those real people were in the folio. And the Stratford man knew them. So you have these tiny little hints that the great author was this William Shakespeare from Stratford-on-Avon. And that's the way he's, he's pronounced his name, by the way. It was Shakespeare. <laughs> um, if you look at the surviving records about him, um, they, you know, they were spelling his name phonetically. So obviously he had to say his name to them and they wrote it. Um, and that's the majority of cases his name is spelled that way. But the interesting thing, going back to the folio, is that um, the letter that I just told you about, was it was signed Hemmings and Condell, but it wasn't written by Hemmings and Condell. It was actually written by another dramatist poet of the period, Ben Johnson. That is the fascinating thing. So right off the bat, you're... You know, you're, there, this is a sign of a hoax, right? I mean, it's been accepted for over 200 years by scholars that Ben Johnson wrote this letter, not Hemmings and Condell. So, so there's some fakery going on. Right. And also, right. when, you, when you look at the title page, you see that famous image, incredibly famous black and white image of supposedly William Shakespeare, right? And that is the first image we knew, the world knew about him. And uh, the, the funny thing about it is that it doesn't depict a writer. You're looking at it, and it's just the picture of a gentleman. But you don't have any pen, paper, um, ink, pot. You don't have laurel leaves in his hair. You know, back then it was... So many um, engravings of authors, they're shown wearing a, a laurel leaf, like a sign of poetic victory. Like, you know, in the Olympics, you get a, like a laurel leaf. The same thing was for poetry back then. 
So you have this strange image and very wooden face looking and the hair looks a little weird. Um, so really a lot of people have looked at it and think that really what we're looking at is a mask, a wooden mask. And the reason they think that also is because you can see two lines at below the ear. And it, you know, it's unnatural that there would be two lines there. But if, if really it was a mask, there would be two lines there, that a mask that you could pull off. So there's a lot of strange things about the folio. And um, you think that's kind of a hidden in plain sight thing that they're trying to say that. Yes. And I think there was, is- a, there was a lot of that. And right across from it, from that image, you know, you have the title page with the image on it. But um, on the left side of the page is a letter to the reader, a poem to the reader by Ben Johnson again. And he tells you, reader, look not on this picture, but his book. Look not mm-hmm. at, on his mm-hmm. picture, but his book. So Johnson's telling you not to use, to look at it. So why did they include it from the very beginning? So <laughs> could it could it have... Could it have simply been the printer was like, well, we need a picture of a guy and, you know, I mean, could it have been something like that? Or do you think there was more, it it was more trying to tell people, you know, look, look beyond this. And I I think that they're, yes, I think they're both they're Those are the both messages there. You know, there's like, everything is ambiguous about these opening pages and, um, you know, you, you really have to say, look, this is this is where all the evidence comes from. But look, it's not really on the up and up. And how do we know if this is really the Stratford man's portrait? Right. Uh, he died seven years earlier. Where's the image based upon? Hmm. Right. We don't know. So it could have been invented. Hmm. So if it was someone else or even if it was the Stratford man, what uh what are the reasons for him assuming a, a pen name? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I believe, of course, that there of Oxford was a true William Shakespeare. And back then, if you were somebody of high nobility, like the Earl of Oxford was, um, he could trace his family back to the 11th century. Um, you know, with being no, lords and noblemen, so he had one of the oldest families in England. Right, he and was the he was the seventeenth Earl of Oxford. Exactly, and but most it went, it of went them, back a while. Yeah, most of the earls back then were second or first or third. Yeah, third max. You know, and so he had a very proud name, the De Vere name. So um, back then, it was kind of a little bit of a stigma to be involved with writing, creative writing, theater. If you were involved, um, you were not supposed to advertise it. And you, it was considered frivolous. And mm. you certainly wouldn't print anything because that would mean you needed money, that you're a okay. professional. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to be. A, that's below them. That's beneath them. So especially plays that eventually were um, performed in the theater, public theater. So he 
he was actually noted in, I believe, 1589 that um, he wrote anonymously. So he was a known playwright back then, and he was known to write anonymously. So where are his plays? He was one, one writer said he was best in comedy. So where are those plays? Well, we think they were, they, they are the Shakespeare plays, of course. So, um, one of the challenges, and I have to ask you this, one of the challenges to the uh, Oxfordian theory is that he dies in, I have it pulled up right here, 1604, I believe. Yeah, he dies in 1604. And supposedly there were plays that were written until 1616 by Shakespeare. So that's one of the challenges. Um but you answered that, I believe, in the book, that why that some of those plays were not probably ripped. They're probably written a lot earlier. Yes. I um, in the, the final chapter, I believe, in my book, I kind of do these Q&A, you know, like uh, the most salient points that someone might bring up. And one of them was, yes, he wrote The Tempest. He wrote it in 1610. And uh, it was based on a, a shipwreck in 1609. Well, the Earl of Oxford died in 1604. So how can you explain that? And my first answer would be, well, first of all, we don't know when any of the plays were written. We don't have any, any timeline that you see. It's pure speculation. Why? Because there's no life to match it with, with the Stratford man. Stratford man was involved in the theater. He was, truly. Um, I think he, he was a financier. He was investing in theater uh, acting companies. That's the way it, it makes sense to me. He was, but he wasn't writing. So um, that, that would be the first reply is that we, you don't have any evidence when The Tempest was written. And there were numerous uh, shipwrecks um, noted about Bermuda or what, what have you. So it, why does it have to be the 1609 shipwreck in Bermuda? You know? And actually, that is based on a letter that somebody wrote in 1610 about this shipwreck. He wrote a letter about it, several pages. Well, this letter wasn't even published until I, around 1625 which was years after the Stratford man died. There's no way he would have seen this letter. But, but I mean, that's really besides the point. Uh, there, there's no evidence that we were talking about this particular one. Meanwhile, meanwhile, <laughs> you have a reference to the Tempest in a, like 1580, you know, several decades earlier. And it was made by another poet of the period, uh, Sir Philip Sidney. And he was kind of writing, um, kind of making fun of the theater, how, you know, how on the one, you're looking at the stage and one second it's supposed to be the scene of a shipwreck and like the next next minute it's supposed to be a garden or something like that. So he was kind of making fun of that. And he described Caliban, which was like the, kind of the, the negative servant of Prospero. Um, he, he described him 
um, in very specific terms. So that would date the Tempest far earlier. And, you know, that's just one example. There are many, many Shakespeare phrases that I think were already famous that other writers were echoing in in the works. And that's another big part of my book, Shakespeare Suppressed. I I have an appendix full of uh, about 92 or 93 instances of, quote unquote, too early allusions to the place. And all of this gets ignored and it gets ignored because they have the wrong man. Because the Stratford man in 1580, he, he wasn't even involved in the theater at that point. He was, they would say he was, what, 14 or something like that, whatever. He was born in 1564, the Stratford man. So it, it just, it's impossible for the Stratford man. So that's why everything gets dismissed because it's based on the Stratford man's life. But if you accept that there's a question whether he really was the great author, then your, your world just opens up in living color. There is so much to be seen. And that's, that's the excitement of being part of this movement. I, I'm curious, too, as I was reading about this today, um, that there is another, there's a theory called the group theory, uh, where Devere is actually just one of, I guess, three well, they said that it was him and Francis Bacon and Sir Walter Raleigh, which I don't really get that, but um, I never thought of Raleigh as a, as a very literary guy, but maybe he was. Um, you know, that's another interesting theory. What are your thoughts on that, that there could have been more than one author of all these? Yeah, well, you know, um, back to the early plays. Um, you know, the, the Earl of Oxford, in my opinion, started writing plays when he was in a, a teenager. And so that would give him enough time, he died when he was 54, to have written 40 so plays, right? Um, but, you know, there is also kind of a one voice in all the works. And I don't see two voices or three voices. I see one voice, and it's this very um, learned voice that loves people, that, you know, is so polite. I I, I see that just as one person. But, you know, uh, the Earl of Oxford, he was a patron of other writers, like John Lilly, Anthony Mundy, Thomas Churchyard, many, he, he... patronized many books. He was in the center of the literary culture back then. Um, All the writers knew him. And he also, he had many books dedicated to him. And there are all sorts of subjects like history, music, um, other poems, uh, translations, many translations. So, um, yes, I could see that, oh, yeah, maybe he was giving ideas to other writers. I think it's possible, but no, I, I think that he wrote everything that is attributed to Shakespeare. You also talk about um, in the book that in some of the folios, there are some, I guess, translation changes. There's some words that get changed over time from printing because it wasn't as consistent back then as it was um, as it is now. 
so there's words that get changed up. Yes, this is another great problem we have with Shakespeare, the Shakespeare plays. Um, the works, I, I believe most of the works were actually pirated versions. And um, why do we say that? Just like you said, there's the texts really are not in very good shape. If you read the first edition of Romeo and Juliet in 1597, you, you'd have a very hard time understanding what's going on. Not because of the typing, the typeface um, or the language. It's because things are missing. And there's confusion as to what character is saying what. There's missing lines. There's wrong interpreted words. Um, it seems very much, and this is something that's out there among Shakespeare scholars and professors, that there were stenographers in sitting in theaters. They had stenography back then. They were writing all this down because the great author was not publishing his works in his lifetime. You see, that's another interesting thing. In fact, another author said um, for The Passionate Pilgrim, which is a group of, of poems, said that the great author was, you know, I forget the exact term, but he was not happy that someone used his name without his authority. So, Yes, there were piracies of Shakespeare, and that fits perfectly with someone who, in his lifetime, wasn't allowed to publish, to, to, to protect his family name. So, yes, I think, ultimately, we really haven't seen the true Shakespeare plays, the true perfect copies of the Shakespeare plays. I, I think he gathered them and put them somewhere, and it's my great hope that one day they will be discovered. But yes, uh, the Shakespeare plays have had hundreds of years of editing to make them readable. And there's many phrases still and words that they're not sure really what was being conveyed. And you have different editions uh, of the work, uh, like Romeo and Juliet, um, with diff and Hamlet. There are Three editions, different editions of Hamlet. They're all different as, as far as the amount of lines and some lines got corrected. Um, so, yes, it's, um, it's really a, a can of worms to try and get the right text from Shakespeare. Because yeah, I think we take it for granted that oh, Shakespeare wrote these things and they were immediately published. And But no, it's, it's not like that. I mean, you were even saying that some of these could have been the stenographers actually going to the theater and just writing down what they heard. Right. And that's, and it, that was, that was extremely interesting to think of. To think about. Yes. Yes. Um, and th there was at least three or four stenography books back then. So it's certainly a scenario yeah. or um, printers could have, you know, paid actors to recite their role. You know, and somebody will take it down, you know, so they can piece it together. Why? Because the Shakespeare plays were extremely popular. And, well, you know, you, 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 you print the works and you can make money. Right, right. Yeah. And, and you still see that kind of today. I mean, you, you, you see some unlicensed books that get published and these type of things. And yeah. Um, I, what I'd like to do is 
talk about Edward Devere and so why what what are in the plays that, that makes people think that he wrote them that come from like his person might have come from his personal life and from his personal experiences. And I'm going to kind of contrast that with what the dearth of evidence that we really have for the Stratford man. Yes. Um, well, the Earl of Oxford, one of my favorite examples is he, he was Hamlet either, either the, he, the Earl of Oxford was the great author or the great author, whoever he was, knew the Earl of Oxford, because it is really, it is his life right there. And, you know, he was a prince, you could say. He was, he knew the king and queen. He knew the, he loved the counselor's daughter, Ophelia, right? The Earl of Oxford knew the king and queen. He knew the counselor who was his guardian, and his, he loved his daughter, who was Anne Cecil, he, he married her. Okay, so there, there you have it. Anne Cecil died young, just like Ophelia. Ophelia died. She fell into water, uh, a river. Um, a great one is the Earl of Oxford uh, took a grand tour of Europe. When he was 25, he was there for about a year and a half. And then he was on his way home, taking his journey in a boat across the English Channel. And pirates come, and they nearly kill him. And, uh, but he survives, you know, he unscathed. But all of his possessions are taken away. Okay. Well, <laughs> what happened with the Earl of uh, to Hamlet? The same thing. He was, he was coming back to Denmark from England. And his ship was attacked by pirates, and he, he almost was killed by them. So that's a, a, another incredible parallel. I mean, it just keeps going. <laughs> I mean, there's um, um, another play where he is Bertram. Um, now I'm, it, it escapes me, is it? No, it wasn't much ado. Anyway, um, it, the play opens, and it's... Being, it's talking about Bertram being a ward of the, the court, an award of the king. And because his father has passed away, well, that happened with the Earl of Oxford. His father had passed away when he was 12 years old. And because he was not an adult back then, he couldn't just live with his mother. He had to be appointed a special guardian to, for his wardship. And, um, that happened to the Earl of Oxford. I mean, right the opening of that play, and it wasn't as you like. I think it was much ado about that. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting right now. But um, that's another great parallel. Um, every single play, there's some parallels. There's four Shakespeare plays where uh, the hero is told by a third party that his fiance or wife was unfaithful. And the hero believes it and, you know, either kills the wife, like in Othello, or, you know, causes great trouble and problem to the, the poor fiancé or wife. And, you know, that happened in four different Shakespeare plays. Well, the same thing happened with the Earl of Oxford when he came back from his 
tour of Europe, somebody told him there was a problem about when his child was born, when he left from England and when the child was actually born. There was some discrepancy. And he believed it, the Earl of Oxford. And uh, when he came home, um, his wife and family was there and he walked right past her. He wouldn't even see her. He wouldn't allow himself to see her for five years. So, and this was a problem in his life that he was working out in his plays. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wow. Did, did that There's pen name, um, I want to ask if that pen name gave him a, a freedom to be controversial or to be personal uh, more, more than whoever Shakespeare really was or would have had if they were a, a public figure. Yes, I, I think it did. I think it did. But also, you have to keep in mind that it, it turns out that many of the Shakespeare plays were actually initially performed before the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, and her court. Of course, privately, not at a public theater, right? And like one great example was, I believe, 1579 or something. Um, we have a, a title of a play that was performed before Queen Elizabeth, and it was called The History of Errors. Well, that sounds a lot like the comedy of errors, doesn't it? So this was, you know, in the, in the 70s, right? So these plays were really first written for her. And to entertain the queen, he also would put in little portrayals of people in the court, you know, to make her laugh. And sometimes, in some cases, she was... Um, a character, but of course, her character would always be gracious and wonderful and beautiful. Of course, and, um, of course. Yeah. You can't disparage the, the queen, you know. So it's, exactly. And it's okay for the queen to laugh at, you know, a little bit lampooning of some people in the court because she would probably find that funny. So, you know, uh, I think he had license to do that because he was very close to her. And, um, and then when the plays eventually went to the public stage, um, I think that's when the idea that they need to be presented anonymously with no author attached, because then people are going to start looking into this and say, oh, Earl Oxford wrote that? Oh, well, maybe that lady's the queen. Oh, maybe that's Lord Burley. 
And that's what needed to be covered up, I think, hmm. okay. uh, eventually. Yeah, I'm so I'm curious in what the the evidence for the the Strapper Man not being the author. Because I mean, we, we talked a little bit about Edward DeVere, and now I want to talk about this William Shakespeare about him not actually being the author. And there's a lot that is against him. And but I'm, and also too, you have the pen name Shakespeare, and then you have this person named Shakespeare. Was this some kind of weird coincidence? Like, are were they the possibility that they were aware of each other in some way? That's a very good question. Um, I think that the Earl of Oxford knew about the Stratford Man. The Stratford Man came to London pretty much as a money lender. Because that's the first record we have of him in 1592. Um, he had loaned somebody seven pounds or something. And years later, he tried to get it back. So it's in the law records, right? And um, so I think that he was a moneylender. And he also um, hung out with somebody, the, the, someone who was a moneylender too, who, who founded the Swan Theater. So he, he, was, he knew him. Um, and I kind of go into that. Um, so he was involved in the theater, and I think the uh, the great authors, you know, the Earl of Oxford. I think he knew of him, and he did parody him in a few of his plays, and which I I have a couple chapters of that in, in the book. But did the did the uh, William Shakespeare know the great author? Know the Earl of Oxford? That I don't know. I don't think so. But um, going back to you know evidence against the Stratford man. You know, he came from an illiterate household. His, both his parents could not read and write. Um, and so that's, that's a one negative totally against you from the very beginning. And um, his children, he had two surviving children, daughters. They could not read and write, which that's just totally, I mean, look at the plays. They're filled with ladies, young ladies writing letters. Uh, you know, so it's not like he didn't appreciate women uh, being educated. So how is it possible that his own children couldn't, couldn't even appreciate his work, his life work? Um, the, the, and his children, beyond being illiterate, um, they never claimed that their father was an author. In fact, um, one of the daughters, her husband was a doctor, Dr. John Hall. And he, he went to Cambridge. He was a learned man. And he wrote um, down, he kept log books of his patients and, you know, what their problem was and how he treated them. Well, there's no, I mean, he was a literate man. There was no mention that he had a, in these log books that he had a, a father-in-law who was learned and, and famous. And the town of Stratford-on-Avon didn't know it either. They, they didn't celebrate the town as being that, you know, their famous son, William Shakespeare, for at least a hundred years after he died. So, and his neighbors didn't say, you know, that they knew the great author. So, you know, this is all coming blank, blank, blank. And for me, 
one of the biggest things of all is when the Stratford man died in 1616, nobody said a word about it. Now, back then, what a great poet, and believe me, William Shakespeare was famous, and he was known as a great poet, and he was admired. So when he died, some people should have made mention, oh, you know, the writer of Hamlet has passed away. Nobody said a word. They should have written poetic tributes to him in 1616, but that was not done. The first poetic tribute to him was seven years after he died, and that is so unlike other writers who passed away, like Edmund Spencer. He died in 1599, and we know all about his funeral, how um, other writers um, went to his, when he was being buried, they threw pens, their own pens, in the grave with him. You know, we have stories like that. When, when minor writers you've never heard of died, someone wrote something saying he passed away, but, but not for the most famous, pro prolific one of all, them all. So that, that is very, very damning. Uh, so like somebody there, like Christopher Marlowe, when he passed away, that there was probably a... Yes, there were several, several writers mentioned his passing. Um, that was in 1593. Um, when Francis Beaumont died, he was another dramatist in the same year as the Stratford Man, a few months before he died, there were tributes. I don't think they were printed, but people wrote manuscript uh, of his passing. So, and, and he was buried in Westminster Abbey. So was Ben Jonson, so was Edmund Spencer, but the great, the great William Shakespeare was not buried, given that great um, honor to be married in Westminster, buried in Westminster Abbey. So, you know, it's, it's one after the other, after the other. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to put down the Stratford man. I don't think he had really anything I, to do with this. Um, this all started with the first folio book, which, which we, we started um, this interview about, that big book right. that pointed to Stratford Monument and Avon. This was done after the Earl of Oxford died in 1604, and it was done after the Stratford Men in 1616. It was after both of their deaths. And the reason why, of course, that's, that's the great question. I'd like to talk about um, the word Shakespeare and some of the possible origins of that, especially as it relates to the goddess Athena as us being uh, Nashvillians, me and Adam. And uh, we have a yeah. Parthenon replica with a giant statue of the goddess Athena. Yes. Well, back then Athena also called Pallas Athena. Um, she was the kind of um, the, the goddess that back in the 16th century, um, all the writers would appeal to her for wisdom and inspiration um, to, to write. They would always call upon her. So she was kind of their muse in a way. And um, she, um, she was always depicted um, with a shield and a spear. And actually when she was born, 
she was born out of the head of the god Zeus. He had a headache, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, this is uh, Greek mythology. And so he asked another minor god to open his head up, and uh, he did, and out came Athena. And she was in full armor with a, holding a spear and shaking it, shaking it at him. <laughs> so she was a spear shaker. And, um, and she was known. That had, to, that had to hurt. And with, yeah. I mean, with the armor and, I mean, you know, there's a person coming straight out of your head, but like with armor and a spear. I mean, yeah, that's why he had it. Obviously, he had a headache, you know. So, so I, he didn't take aspirin. He just had somebody, you know, pull it out. And uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, so she was a spear shaker. So that, yes, you could say um, that he was inspired by Pallas Athena being a spear shaker. But I'd say even more so for the pen name, the Earl of Oxford was a champion of the joust, that medieval sport. It was revived in the 16th century. And um, the... The spear, the, you know, the lance was known as a spear, a, a long spear. So a spear shaker was a jouster. And there's many examples in the contemporary literature of spear shakers, um, and meaning jousting. So, um, and the Earl of Oxford won at least two tournaments in, in the joust. So a spear shaker is a jouster, and he, he probably based it on that on on you know because it was in his early 20s when he won these tournaments so he's william shakespeare was it now it there's there's in my memory from the documentary that i watched that i was telling you about there i don't think it may have been about the earl of oxford but there's something about some being in being in parliament and having a spear and when they would talk about something that they were really animated about, they would shake it. And so that there was a nickname that was called Shakespeare. I'm, I'm not aware of that. It could be. Yeah, that's something that I yeah. remember from that documentary. I don't know if that's something about, about Edward DeVere or whether that was another mm -hmm. a speculation about somebody else. Yeah, I don't know. But interestingly, uh, the Earl of Oxford, in a public oration, um, another writer uh, before Queen Elizabeth, the Earl of Oxford and all the you know, higher ups, um, he gave a speech um, about directed to the Earl of Oxford. And he said all these wonderful things about him that he was, you know, he was uh, basically saying you're you're a great scholar and writer, um, but you should put your pen down and focus upon military matters, basically. And in in this and it was in Latin, of course, um, so I can't give you the exact translation, but many of our people say that the Latin stands for thy will shakes spears. He uses that phrase in Latin. So, and this was just a few years mm -hmm. after his um, jousting championships. So, um, it was already known he was using i i think this one writer was you know punning on his pen name right there and then that's uh, yeah, directly that's, to the earl of oxford that's very compelling yes yeah it's very compelling stuff and it just 
that really brings me, I think, to the big question. And I think we, Sergio, hit on it a little bit, but I want to kind of expound on it. Of well, first, I'd like to talk about you. You know, as an espouser of this theory, with the pushback that you have had from others that you know the the Stratford Stratfordians, I guess you could call them uh, Stratfordians. I don't know. Yeah, um, you said it right, Stratfordians. The, uh, the some of the pushback you've gotten personally on this, but also why it's important that it is the Stratford man. And because like I, like I, I was saying before, um, a pin name is not unusual. I mean, it's more of, I guess, a more modern thing, but Mark Twain obviously is the big one. Samuel Clemens, everyone knows him as Mark Twain there, but there's never any doubt that Samuel Clemens and Mark Twain are the same guy. Uh, you know, so this is not an unusual literary practice, and it probably really wasn't even then. No, there were many. Uh, one scholar said it, the 16th century was the golden age of pen names. And I've never understood why this, this, the that theory um, has people are so vociferous about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I honestly I haven't had that much pushback um i i uh, you know before covid i had given talks at various libraries and things like that and um i i, I mostly was treated with respect i i get you know a few pointed questions but um basically um as when my book came out i mean there's been no real recognition by stratfordians they basically ignore the issue because they have their man and they don't want to, they don't want to look into it. They don't care. They, I don't know, maybe they want to protect their PhDs or their Shakespeare biographies, which are, I'm sorry to say, a great deal of speculation in there, very little fact. There's, you know, they, they, they cover the facts, the facts of the period, but not the facts of the man of relevance, <laughs> you know, um, you know, learning about his, that he owed taxes and that he was deposed for a, uh, a lawsuit or something like that. That to me is not, there's no par life parallels with the works. So, no, I haven't, you know, the, the Stratfordians have not, a, thankfully, they haven't attacked me. Um, Nobody gets into bar fights at the, after the conferences. <laughs> no, no, okay. no. Um, but you know, but we've tried our best to engage them, and there have been a few instances where they do debate us. Um, but recently, uh, about um, I think 2014, uh, uh, an organization. Uh, if you go to doubtaboutwill.org. Um, they, yeah, I've actually got it pulled up right now. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. They, they made, um, they, they offered a 40,000 pound donation to be given to the Shakespeare birthplace trust. And that is a charity, a registered charity. And for them to, you know, uh, participate in a mock trial to prove their case for the Stratford man, that there is no reason to doubt that the Stratford man was the great author. And they declined it. I mean, 40,000 pounds, that's a lot of money for a charity. 
um, they, that they couldn't back up their own man. I mean, that's to me what the message is. But, but they don't want to give it credibility, I think, the, the concept. They in just want the myth to keep going. In addition to the, the vested academic interests and the careers and, and, and writers and things like that, uh, there's also a large tourism industry and there's like other peripheral kind of institutions and industries that are based on the, the Straffordman hypothesis. Yes, um, that's a very good point. Yes, there's the birthplace trust, uh, the birthplace, the Shakespeare birthplace, there's Anne Hathaway's cottage, uh, you know, there's uh, several places in Stratford. They, they reap the benefits from tourism, of course, you know. Um, yeah, that, I think that's all part of it. Um, but to me, if you are a lover of Shakespeare and you spend your life studying him as an English professor or what have you, English teacher, um, you don't really want to know the real man. <laughs> you just want to go with, uh, like, I mean, that was the whole reason that J. Thomas Looney um, started to doubt because he just couldn't match the plays with the Stratford man's known life, which is, we don't know anything about it. So, so, you know, that to me, I find that very, in a way, tragic and that they're, they're doing their research in the wrong direction. And I don't want, I don't want lovers of, true lovers of Shakespeare, like me and you and your listeners who, who love him. Um, I want them to know the real man because they're going to enjoy the plays so much better when they have a real life and a, an illustrious, incredible life at that. Yeah. Match with the plays. And, 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 and that's the thing that it, it being Edward Devere or anybody else or the Stratford man or whoever it is, it doesn't take away for the plays for me. Like I can watch a Shakespeare play and it's just like, well, oh, it's just some aristocrat that wrote this. I can't watch it now. It's not like, it's not like I can't do that. No, you, you, you really going to get under his skin. You're going to, you're going to know the real man who's writing this and his motivation for writing a lot of these plays and that he was extremely learned he, you know, they, in, in the folio, they wanted to give you the idea that he was this genius that, like, automatic writing, you know, it just came from, you know, heaven th through his pen. Not that he sweat at it, that, not that he rewrote, not that he, you know, um, really got into writing. They just want you to believe it just came naturally. Uh, that wasn't the case. And, you know, the Earl of Oxford... When he was um, eight years old, he went to Cambridge University. He was a child prodigy. He got his bachelor's when he was 12 and his master's when he was 16. He went on to law school. Uh, he had private tutors when he was young. Who, who We have an, a letter that said that we've taught him everything. <laughs> you know, and he was quite young. So, you know, he, he, he went to law school. He took a grand tour of Europe. There are so many, we didn't even get into this. There are so many um, references to obscure places in Italy and France that you had to have been there to know about it. Yeah. Um, there's no 
no evidence that Stratford Man ever left England. And, and, and I, I read a counter to the, the counter to that. And that's the thing about some of these counters is that they're weaker than the evidence for Devere. Is that, well, there was this popular travel log at the time, and Shakespeare took the he took all the information from the travel log and and I'm just like, what? <laughs> I'm telling you, it just it doesn't make sense. It would uh, make more sense if it was something that was personally experienced. Yes, of course. Uh, there, there's, there's one wonderful example, and you can find it in Richard Rowe's book, R-O-E, uh, The Shakespeare Guide to Italy. It's wonderful. And he, he made it his life work to, um, you know, in his spare time, of course, to find places that are mentioned in the plays in Italy. And he, he, he sought them out and he found one after the other. And one great one, a quick one, um, there are sycamore trees outside of the, I believe, the western gate of Verona. Um, and that was mentioned in Act One of Romeo and Juliet. Now, that is not something that was famous and well-known. It was just a minor detail that was mentioned. That, you know, someone asked, where's Romeo? And they said, oh, he's, you know, near the sycamore trees, near the Western Gate, something like that. And, well, Richard Rowe went to that exact location, and sure enough, there were sycamore trees there. Mm. You had to have been there to know that. That's one minor example. He gives many others. And it's just fascinating. It just, that is fascinating. It just, the more you get into it, the more there is. Uh, and it, it's really wonderful. And I really encourage your listeners to read about it, get my book. Um, but, but look into it because um, look into his life. It's really wonderful. I'm curious. Um, I'm sure you have, but the film Anonymous, have you seen that? Yes. Yeah. That came out in, in uh, 2011. Were you happy with the research on that? that, that well, was- you know, it was, you know, of course, it was a great deal fictional. Um, right. I, I can't say I agree with how, you know, everything they presented, but it was, I think it is the first movie to actually portray the Earl of Oxford as, as Shakespeare and to show them the Earl of Oxford and the Stratford man as two, two different people. And that was very enlightening for me to finally see something like that um and also you know i don't know if you remember but there was this wonderful scene where it's his library kind of his office and it was filled with all these wonderful gadgets and things and books and all and really that kind of got my you know excited my imagination like yeah what did his library look like what did his study look like I have not seen it, but I think I'm going to watch it tonight. Oh, you should. You should. Yeah. I mean, it's historically not, you know, 100% there. But, I mean, it is a fiction, and, and, and the director, note, you know, did explain that. Um, but it was wonderful just to see the period. And, um, yeah, it's kind of a counter, I guess, to Shakespeare in Love, I, I suppose. Right, right, which, uh, which really is pure fiction. I found it interesting. Um, that uh, some of the one of the doubters was Orson Welles. And I mean, if there was ever someone that was an expert in Shakespeare, it was Orson Welles. Yes. 
and there there are many others besides him who, who you know you mentioned Jeremy Irons and mm-hmm. um, there's Mark Rylance these are famous Shakespeare actors yeah Derek Jacoby Derek is another Jacoby. one yeah. yes mm-hmm. yes and um, and they're they're patrons of those two are patrons of the doubt about will org dot org organization oh really um, yeah so they're they're pretty involved so yeah um well uh Sergio, was there anything that you wanted to ask or i just wanted to say it was uh this is real fascinating and it's one of those enduring historical mysteries uh i can kind of relate to uh you know being interested in some things from the not not so distant past but things that are so murky but there is like an air of like established fact and things that are mostly based on speculation themselves and that's yes. got to be kind of infuri- infuriating i kind of know how it is on some things yes well you know the great author he he pur- he purposely did not reveal himself while he was alive but he fully expected for people to figure out that he was using a pen name, that William Shakespeare was actually a pen name. I don't think he knew that they would try and fuse the pen name with an actual human being who was not him. So, you know, he's kind of was the victim of a hoax. Yeah. It's not right. Um, I think he kind of knew that he wouldn't get open credit after his death, which he should have. It was perfectly acceptable after a nobleman dramatist died, it would be perfectly acceptable to praise him and talk about his works and print his works. But that courtesy was not extended to the great author. And I think he knew that that wouldn't happen. Um, He, in one of his sonnets, I often um, recite it, he says to the young man, your name from hence immortal life shall have. Though I, once gone, to all the world must die. Mm-hmm. So he knew something was going, <laughs> going on. But I, I think in his heart of hearts, I think he, he thought eventually people would figure it out that, you know, he, Hamlet was him and, um, and that he would get recognition. But look, it's been 400 years now. <laughs> could, could it- could the reason have been that he didn't get the credit? Could it have been a family thing? Could his children have been embarrassed by it? Well, I think, um, yes, uh, his children um, were, were the grandchildren of Lord Burley, who was very powerful. And um, also Lord Burley's son, Robert Cecil, he, some think he, he was a lampooning through as Richard the third, you know, the, the evil hunchback because he, mm-hmm. he himself was hunchback or, or had curvature of the spine. So, um, yeah, I think that in it, part of it was to cover up the Cecil family who was being you know, satirized in the works. Um, but I also think it was political. And I, I do get into that in the final chapters of Shakespeare suppressed that it may have had something to do with the succession. But keep in mind, um, in 1640, now that's like 17 years after the first folio came out. So De Vere is long dead. So is the Stratford man. And somebody wrote, an anonymous person, 
Shakespeare, we must be silent in thy praise. Why? Why would someone say that? And somebody in the same year, they, they drew a similar image to the picture that's in the folio, that black and white engraving, supposedly, of the great author. And someone kind of copied it, something like it, and put a verse underneath it. And the first line of the verse was a question. It was, this shadow is renowned Shakespeare, the soul of the age, with question marks. Mm. So as early as 1640, people were doubting. This, this guy really was a great author. So, it, you know, it, mostly it, it got going in the 1850s, but there was some doubt in the 17th century as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious before we let you go, um, what would we need to finally firmly establish this? I think we need to find the Shakespeare play manuscripts, which have disappeared to the last page. We don't have anything, anything. It's, it's in, in a castle somewhere. <laughs> right. So if we can find even one page of a play manuscript and see whose handwriting it was, as we have several letters of the Earl of Oxford. There's a, I, quite a few. So we can certainly match the handwriting. So I think that would turn it over forever. <laughs> yeah, this, this is one of the... This really is like one of the great historical mysteries. It is. And one of the biggest hoaxes in literature, really. I wish there are a lot of, actually. Well, yeah. Catherine, this has been very awesome. This has been very enlightening. Yes, thank you. Um, I am uh, definitely going to explore a lot more of this. I think this, this is a very cool subject. Um, where can people find your book? Uh, where can they where and where can they find um, your other writings and uh, your presence on the web? Um, yeah, I, I have a website, shakespearesuppressed.com, and you can read the introduction to my book there. And you can contact me um, and buy the book through me personally, or you can just go straight to Amazon and get it. And um, I'm part of the Shakespeare Oxford fellowship.org that organization so i would encourage your listeners to go there and uh, i've re um, done a few zoom uh presentations uh through them and through their um youtube channel so you can go there to see some of my presentations and um, i would encourage your listeners also to go to doubtaboutwill.org and read the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt and maybe sign it, um, that there is doubt about the Stratford Man. And, um, and also, oh, I'm going to be giving another uh, Zoom presentation about the first folio on April 9th. And it's uh, free. You have to go to our website, um, ShakespeareOxfordFellowship.org, and you can get details there. I believe it's free. You just have to register. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. I will definitely, I will definitely check that out. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so, so much for being here and doing this. So we're going to close this section out. But if you could stay on the line for us. Sure. And guys, we'll be right back on Normal to close out the show. All right. 
that was really fascinating um this is the kind of stuff that i really want to do more of what did you think about that Sergio? it was interesting uh you know historic mysteries I, I didn't i really didn't know a lot about it and how much uncertainty there really was but like i was telling her um it reminds me of like in some of my studies of like uh 18th, 19th century occultism you know how murky all that stuff still is but you know like oh. i was joking with dave I, you still have the like wikipedia uh disclaimer at the bottom of the youtube video talking about the illuminati or or whatever you know yeah exactly <laughs> well i was thinking just about um when she said that the the reason she got into it was william f buckley and a debate i mean could you see that now being debated on tv a conservative pundit right exactly I wasn't going to go there, but yeah, a conservative pundit debating that on TV. <laughs> I just, I, I, I just could not see that now as even a possibility. So that, I mean, that in and of itself is, is pretty amazing. I was thinking, and, you know, what's the, what's the difference though, between a historical mystery and a conspiracy theory, there seems to be some gray area, but this in particular, because of the enduring mystery of Shakespeare and his identity, there's been like a whole cottage industry of Shakespeare conspiracy, the most outlandish being that he, he wrote the Bible. Yeah. That one? Yeah. Yeah. I have heard about that. Yeah. I have heard about that. Uh, I think there was some, there's some verifiable copies of the Bible prior to Shakespeare, but you know, right, right. So yeah, uh, that's interesting. You bring that up because I'm about to find this here, but there is something about the, about the Earl of Oxford or the Duke of Oxford that he did. Yeah. Oxford's Bible. So yeah, the, he didn't write the Bible. Okay. Um, but this is interesting. So in the late 1990s, Roger A. Strittmater conducted a study of the marked passages found in Edward de Vere's Geneva Bible, which is now owned by the Folger Shakespeare Library. The Bible contains 1,028 instances of underlined words or passages and a few handwritten annotation, most of which consists of a single word or fragment. Sirtmeyer believes about a quarter of the marked passages appear in Shakespeare's work as either a theme, illusion, or quotation. Yeah, I saw that. So that's interesting too. Um, the Oxfordian theory, and I will say theory, is compelling. It's very, very compelling. Um, but we don't, we don't know. Because in lieu of some handwritten manuscripts, like Catherine was saying, we really may not ever know. <laughs> but my whole thing is, I don't, do you think that it's more that this is kind of a class thing that they want Shakespeare to just be this ordinary guy and he wasn't some nobleman? It really kind of 
has this kind of Marxist quality to it in a sense. Or maybe just an English thing. Yeah. And like you said too, I mean there's there's a there's a ton of um tourism money that <laughs> might be impacted <laughs> by this. A Stratford upon Avon as it being like the birthplace of Shakespeare. So that's definitely a thought too. I'm sure that there's a little bit of pushback there. Yeah, I've got like no, I, no skin in the game here. Yeah. But like I said, I mean, it does not diminish the value of Shakespeare's work and it does not diminish your enjoyment of it. You know, I I am one of those people that gets enjoyment uh from both reading but more seeing the plays being acted out and those type of things. So, yeah, it's genius. Right beautiful right so no matter what whether it was an ordinary guy or an aristocrat like the earl of oxford um it is a work of genius but i guess people i guess people wanted to be kind of like mozart right where mozart was this you know he came out of nowhere from like the lower class and he was a genius I guess that's kind of the the gist of it. I but mean, they I wanted guess to be completely self taught guy. It is possible, but it's probably unlikely. Sure. Sure. But Very I don't cool under stuff. I just I don't understand enough about the the time period and what I really don't understand is how if it was someone who was um you know, public or outward about this, like how he didn't, how documentation didn't get built up around this man during his right. lifetime and have, you know, why there isn't a lot of surviving stuff that doesn't make sense to me, but then also this is a different time period. I don't really know the details of how, uh, how and what, you know, was, would have been documented about this person. Yeah, records are not as well kept at that time as they are now. So, all right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up. But before we do, we want to remind everybody that coming up uh, this coming Friday, this will be out uh, fairly soon, around about the 20th or 21st of March. Uh, we do have on the 25th, David Metcalf. For a strange reality streaming event. Yes. And he will be presenting on Star Children and Psychic Futures coming up March 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You guys, there's two ways you can do that. You can join our Patreon of ten dollars or above or you can go to a to eventbrite and you can get uh a ten dollar one-time ticket there and that will be linked uh posted in the show notes of this episode just like it was on the previous episode we did with david so serviel can tell you where you can find our patreon and where you can join in for that yeah, absolutely. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Um, you can hear our 
bonus episodes and continuing conversations at the $5 level, become a conspiracy normalist and join the international association of conspiracy normalists there at the $10 level. Like Adam was talking about, uh, you get to join our mystic crew and are invited to all these strange realities, streaming presentations every month, uh, as well as the bonus episodes and other content. Uh, for the $20 and up level, you get to enter the ancient circle of strange realities and get an exclusive, uh, probably a couple of t-shirts now and a special VIP experience at strange realities conference. That's at patreon.com. All right, guys. And also YouTube channels out there. Conspiracy normal podcast. Give us a subscribe, even though we don't, uh, expect a lot on that YouTube channel, but, uh, Give us a subscribe there and also uh, keep listening. All right, guys. Uh, pretty soon we will be doing another um, Paranoid Styles episode. So stay tuned for that as well. And uh, we will be back. The first Strange Realities event with David Metcalf, March 25th, for Conspiranormal. please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.